When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So we're up against a master thief, assassin, high performance driver. Who is he? The movies are back, baby. This week on the show, it's our summer movie preview. We'll share our top five questions about the summer movie season. Who is this master thief, assassin, high-performance driver, Josh? Come on, Adam. Jacob Toretto, Dom's brother. It's all right there in the F9 trailer. Our top four questions about the (laughs) summer movie season ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We didn't get to it last week, so this show will wrap up our 40s noir marathon with our end of marathon awards. We're calling them The Savages. Podcast listeners will hear those. We've got Betty Davis and Jimmy Cagney battling it out for best performance. How about some directors here vying for best picture? William Wyler, Raul Walsh, and Orson Welles. The awards themselves named for detours and Savage, and she might just take home one of her namesake awards. Yeah, safe to say. I mean, she better. Right. I'll give I'll give you some Ann Savage eyeballs if you don't go that route, Adam. Radio listeners, you can find the full show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll get in now to our 2021 summer movie preview. Couldn't do this last summer, Josh. We actually have movies in theaters and of course available on a host of various streaming platforms. And this preview will be film spotting style, not just in the form of questions about the summer movie season, but I don't know about your list, but I'm going to highlight almost zero movies that anyone would actually consider a summer movie. I think that's true for all. No, I think two of mine could qualify. Two of mine could qualify. So I'll try to keep, I'll try to carry the populist load here, Adam. I'll do what I can. (laughs) Some popcorn pictures going to make your list, it sounds like. And we have this comment I thought would be a nice setup from listener John Dembski in response to our recent film spotting poll about summer movies. He said, I was so close to choosing Green Knight or even Candyman, but then I remembered that since the last time I went to a movie theater, the world has been a strange, mysterious, and sometimes horrifying place. So I don't need a movie to show me that. Know what I haven't done lately, though? Drive a car in outer space. F9 on IMAX, please. I need a dose of gloriously idiotic blockbuster action. I don't know. This preview, I think, was the toughest one for me yet. And I feel caught in sort of a weird middle ground where I completely understand what John is saying. I'll be honest. I'm kind of dreading even a little bit seeing A Quiet Place Part 2 
in the theater next week just mm. because of the dread, because I know it's going to be an intense watch in that thriller vein. And then at the same time, I don't really want to watch F9 either. I have to confess, as much fun as I've had with that series, we devoted an entire show and top five to that series. I just find myself kind of resisting it. I still haven't even watched the trailer, even as I prepared this week. So I do have a couple titles that maybe would qualify as fun. Then I've got three others that are kind of heavy. So I don't know, Josh, very schizophrenic list for me. And I don't quite know what to make of it. I'm just going to chalk it up to this weird weird space that we're all in at the moment. Okay. So we're not going to be reviewing F9. Good to know that <laughs> going well, into it. I think we'll just... listeners would revolt if we didn't. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. Otherwise, I, I will report from my date with Debbie on that one because she is not going to let me miss it. So we'll get to F9 in one way or another. Can I float a theory about maybe the hesitance or the reluctance? Uh, maybe those aren't the right words, but maybe we're both a little gun shy about declaring that this is really going to happen. Hmm. I mean, how many big titles have been yanked away from us? That's what we spent last summer doing is maybe this date. Oh, okay. Maybe this date. And so we don't want to jinx things by saying this is coming out this date. I mean, it should, right? We should be moving in that direction, but I don't know. Maybe we're just a little hesitant about yeah. being so declarative about it. I can tell you though, Adam, you are onto something about I don't think just A Quiet Place Part 2, but the theatrical experience in general. I mean, I have seen a couple movies in theaters in the last month, but um, A Quiet Place Part 2, I went to the press screening earlier this week, and it was in that Dolby theater, mm -hmm. you know, where they sometimes yeah. hold press screenings. And I had forgotten what the sensory experience was like. And as soon as that Dolby promo comes up, the, the seat itself starts rattling. Mm -hmm. I, I almost jumped out of my seat and I literally plugged my ears for the whole Dolby promo. <laughs> my body was so out of rhythm with yeah. seeing movies that big and loud that I could not take it. Wait, that, uh, that doesn't happen on your couch at home? Not quite. You no, I haven't invested, haven't invested in that sort of system. All that film spotting money and you haven't upgraded <laughs> yes. at home? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm getting with the film spotting money. I'm getting my own private screening room built ah, next door. Okay. So yeah, that'll right. be coming up pretty soon. All right. Well, let's get into our lists and let's see how heavy or how frivolous your picks are. Your number five question. Probably not a popcorn picture here. My question is, is Undine really about a mermaid. So this is the latest feature from German filmmaker Christian Petzold. We spent time, Adam, on two of his films, Phoenix and Transit. I think Transit, we gave a full review on the mm -hmm. show. A really challenging filmmaker, but a rewarding one. Very mysterious films, I think, is how I could describe both of those. And that does seem to be the case here. Maybe even more so. The title refers to the mythological sea nymph who becomes human when she falls in love with a man but is doomed to die if he is unfaithful to her. So that's the myth. Here's IMDb's synopsis for Petzold's film. Undine works as a historian, lecturing on Berlin's urban development. But when the man she loves leaves her, the ancient myth catches up with her. I didn't want to investigate much more because I want that mystery to remain, especially with a Petzold film. I did, however, see this in a Criterion.com blog post on the movie, they said, of all of Petzold's theatrical features, Undine is the least moored to reality. Hmm. So, this may not be Sofia Coppola's Little Mermaid. May it rest in peace, but consider me very intrigued nonetheless. I should note, it stars Paula Beer and Franz 
Rogowski, both of whom were very, very good in transit. So that's Undine, and it comes out pretty pretty quickly here, June 4. Yeah, when I think of Petzold, I definitely think of movies rooted in reality, especially when you think of a World War II drama like Phoenix or a post-World War II drama like Phoenix. But then you think of Transit, which at first you imagine is going to be a movie in a similar vein, and then it takes on this bizarre, not quite fantastical, but almost fantasy perspective. So I'm not totally shocked to see Petzold go there with this film. And I am also intrigued by it. It was one of my most anticipated movies that played virtually at the Chicago Film Festival this past October. Didn't have a chance to see it then. Hope I will get to now as it is released this summer. My number five question is, what does Jafar Panahi meets Pulp Fiction look like? The movie is called There Is No Evil, and I will provide this disclaimer. I'm not sure I should be allowed to pick a movie for a summer movie preview that actually is out already. But in fairness, we tend to do these movie previews a little bit later than a lot of other publications. And this just came out this past Friday. There is no evil can be seen in a few theaters, but more accessible via virtual cinemas. It's a movie that won the Golden Bear, the top prize for best film at the Berlin Film Festival in 2020. And it's directed by a filmmaker new to me, Mohammed Rasulov, who can't leave Iran and has actually been banned from making movies in his home country. This film, There Is No Evil, had to be shot in secret and then smuggled out of Iran. So here's the official synopsis. There Is No Evil is an anthology feature comprised of four stories of men who are each put in front of an unthinkable but simple choice to follow orders to enforce the death penalty upon others or not. Whatever they decide, it will directly or indirectly corrode themselves, their relationships, and their entire lives. The humanistic stories offer insight into crucial themes of moral strength and the harshness of the death penalty under an oppressive regime. So I mentioned Panahi, and we've talked about his work a little bit here on the show over the years, made Taxi Tehran, made Offside, The Circle, and this is not a film, a movie we gave a full review to that he had to make while he was under house arrest. And like Rasulov, he's been banned from leaving Iran as well. Eric Cohn from IndieWire wrote about this movie, seeing it at Berlin and said, the scope of the storytelling combines Pulp Fiction energy with the structural playfulness of Rasulov's fellow Iranian auteur Panahi, but radiates with a narrative urgency all its own. So yeah, heavy stuff doesn't really seem like much of a summer popcorn movie, Josh, but as I was thinking about this list and the questions that genuinely did most intrigue me, I just kind of went on instinct with the movies I really wanted to see the most. And we had our eyes opened to contemporary Iranian cinema when we did it as a marathon several years ago here on the show. And just the urgency of it, the audacity of it, I suppose, of of making a movie that you know, is going to get the reaction from the people in power, the regime in power that it did, that you're going to be put under a ban for 20 years and not be allowed to do the thing that you love to do, to actually make art, to be an artist, and that you're going to have to do it probably for the rest of your life in secret. I mean, we think about a lot of the restrictions or the roadblocks to getting art made even in this country, though those barriers, I think, over the years have 
gotten smaller and smaller in terms of the ease with which you can make a movie, the budget you need, the equipment you have access to, all of those things. Still, making any kind of film is a challenge. And yet when you talk about a filmmaker like Rasulov and a film like There Is No Evil, you're talking about something on a completely different level. Pass the popcorn. Mm. <laughs> no, it, it sounds incredibly compelling. And and yeah, I've seen with its release, with it coming out right now, I've seen a lot of good responses to it. So definitely need to put that on my radar as well. My number four question, am I too old for Zola? I've been on Twitter for a long time now, Adam, too long, really. I think it's, I think it's been too long, <laughs> but I feel like I know my way around fairly well, definitely finding it harder to keep up these days. One Twitter thing I did not follow, and this was a little while back now, still don't quite understand it, is the 2015 Stripper Saga thread posted by Isaiah Zola Wells. A bizarre, complicated story. Honestly, I haven't even looked into all of the details. I do know that it caused enough of a stir to be adapted, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. adapted into a movie that is called Zola. So why am I interested? Well, the co-writer and the director here is Janixa Bravo, and I saw her feature debut, Lemon, at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival. Lemon is a weird one, stars Brett Gelman as a man whose life unravels when his longtime girlfriend leaves him. But there's some really clever visual comedy going on. Maybe it's a bit indulgent in its oddness. Still, it definitely marked Bravo as a talent to watch. So I've been doing that, waiting for another movie. She has done some TV since then. Dear White People, I think, an episode, episode of Forever. But this is her first feature since Lemon. I'm not surprised, uh, based on that, that she's taken on an idiosyncratic project like Zola. Should mention it stars Riley Keough and Taylor Page. For me, though, yeah, Janixa Bravo, she's the reason I'm eager for this one. And it's coming to us next month. Zola is out on June 30. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. You want to go somewhere with me? That's my place. Yeah, in doing my research for this list, I came across that movie and its inspiration, its source material, if you will. I guess that's the world we live in now, where a Twitter thread, of course, can inspire a movie. But like you, Josh, I wonder about my age or how in tune I am with pop culture also completely off my radar. So, Well, maybe we'll put it on our radar this summer. We'll okay. check it out. My number four is, speaking of just pop culture and being right on top of it here, Josh, will Siberia force me to finally reckon with, quote, one of the more important directors currently living, unquote, or where will Siberia place Willem Dafoe and Abel Ferrara in the pantheon of cinema's best actor-director? collaborators two for one there with that yeah long question, question. yes <laughs> so the quote referencing ferrara as one of the more important directors currently living comes from the playlist and their summer movie preview this is a filmmaker who has 50 i think imdb credits ranging from short films to music videos to documentaries to narrative features of course and of those 50 i have seen king of new york with Christopher Walken, which came out in 1990, and I only saw it fairly recently, sometime in the last five to ten years. I think I watched it for a film spotting top five list. Of course, most people probably think of Bad Lieutenant 
with Harvey Keitel, a movie that came out in 92, a movie that came out right at that time where I was becoming a cinephile and wanting to check out edgy art house cinema. And I've definitely seen many scenes from Bad Lieutenant, but I don't know, Josh, that I can say I've actually sat and started and finished and processed Bad Lieutenant. So I really am only counting King of New York as the one Abel Ferrara credit that I've seen. He's a filmmaker who does like to work with a lot of the same people. Wikipedia has a very handy chart of all the frequent collaborators and the different movies they were in. He made five with Christopher Walken. He made six with Victor Argo, a character actor who you probably don't know any of the movies he's been in by name, but if you Googled him and saw his picture, you'd go, oh yeah, that guy. And he's made six now with Willem Dafoe, the previous films being New Rose Hotel, Go-Go Tales, 444 Last Day on Earth, Pasolini, and Tommaso. This movie, Siberia, played, like my number five pick, at the Berlin International Film Festival. It was in competition for The Golden Bear. And one description of it I saw earlier today, Josh, described it as a psychological survival horror flick. I'll give you this synopsis. The Oscar-nominated actor stars as an American expat who runs a bar in the frozen tundra of, you guessed correctly, Siberia. In search of answers to life, the universe, and everything, this tavern owner hightails it with some huskies to a cave in which dreams mesh with reality, memories blend into the present, and a tortured man experiences one long dark night of the soul. It's an Abel Ferrara movie, in other words, that from Rolling Stone's summer movie preview. It's got 19 reviews over at Rotten Tomatoes. Not quite fresh, Josh, just underneath the 60% threshold, has 11 positives. David Ehrlich is not one of those positive reviews. He says, for all of Ferrara's reckless abandon and Defoe's unimpeachable commitment to artistic exploration, Siberia becomes increasingly unable to instigate our own journeys of the soul. Seldom has the collective unconscious felt so inaccessible. But Alexander Heller Nicholas says Siberia captures precisely what it is that makes Ferrara's film so electrifying. While not always coherent, he is determinedly consistent in his devotion to his core visions and as hungry as ever to discover new ways to express them. I did watch the trailer for Siberia earlier today, and that lack of coherency definitely comes through even in the trailer, Josh. I was thinking about Defoe and the hallucination scene where he's being tempted by the devil in The Last Temptation of Christ. Like, imagine that, but probably played out over the course of an entire <laughs> two-hour movie and way, way trippier. So, I'm not going to claim to really be able to process at all what I saw in that trailer, but I'm intrigued, and I'm mainly intrigued, going back to that first question, because Abel Ferrara is this filmmaker I have just slept on over all my years of being a cinephile and of being a critic, and that's probably something I need to fix. I will note, too, it's the summer of Willem Dafoe. Not only is he in Siberia, but possibly we'll get him in the French Dispatch, the Wes Anderson film, finally. And then just as summer ends in September, he's going to be in the new Paul Schrader, along with Oscar Isaac, The Card Counter, so two other Defoe films that I'm really excited about. This movie does come to select theaters and I think can be rented on some different platforms June 18th. Also, will be out on Blu-ray and DVD and digital on June 22nd. I have been on a journey for many years seeking good and what evil was to be avoided 
They say you're a great magician. Tell me, what do you make of the black arts? And then something spoke to me. What was it? Well, if Robert Pattinson is in that Siberian cave, it's going to be great. And I, I am all in. So let's hope it goes that direction. My only Ferrara, I'm right there with you. That whole filmography, just one film of his I've seen, 1995's The Addiction. Hmm. This has uh, Lily Taylor as a philosophy grad student who gets bitten by a vampire. So all I really remember is pretty sure it was in black and white. And it was one of those movies that we took a friend who's, you know, likes movies, but isn't like really into movies. Have you ever had this experience, Adam? As a matter of fact, I think we kind of had this experience, (laughs) speaking of Willem Dafoe, when we took Sarah to to the White House. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sarah has been, unfortunately, a victim of this. But yeah, went with this friend. with me. (laughs) Went with this friend to the addiction. And it took a while before she would go to another movie with me again. I believe it. All right. My number three question, never mind Sia or music, but can Questlove direct? And here I'm referring to the documentary Summer of Soul. Looks like a slightly different project than Sia's ill-fated musical drama from earlier this year. You may recall, Adam, that was one of my questions at the start of the year. Oh, I recall. Music, music not well-received at all. So horribly reviewed. Just scared me away from even even checking. I think it might have even been yanked from theaters or streaming or wherever it was available. I mean, did not go over well. Summer of Soul. All right. This hopefully will be fulfill its promise a little bit more. It's a documentary that uses footage from the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival that brought together the likes of Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Mahalia Jackson, and B.B. King. Now, Amir Khalib Thompson, that would be Questlove, fresh off serving as musical director and DJ for the Oscars. He is at the helm here, working with 40 hours of never-before-seen concert footage that has been in storage for the past 50 years. Early word on this one has been really strong. I was talking to Abby Olchesi, who I podcast with over at Think Christian. She had just gone to the True False Film Fest and told me this was absolutely one of the highlights of the docs she saw there. So Summer of Soul comes out a little bit later on July 2. Hopefully this is one we can check out and maybe give some time to on the show. Yeah, I really want to see it. My number three is also a documentary, and I suppose based on my first two picks, There Is No Evil and Siberia would qualify as the most fun choice so far, as much as a movie that is about a chef and television personality and writer who tragically died at the age of 61, ruled a suicide, could be. And that movie is Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. My question, how fully will Roadrunner satiate my post-pandemic appetite for food and travel and make me miss its subject? Roadrunner is directed by Morgan Neville, who made two other very good documentaries, 20 Feet from Stardom and Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I was thinking about that movie today in relation to what the Bourdain doc might be. And... There's an interesting connection, at least for me, in the sense that you watch Won't You Be My Neighbor and you're kind of waiting for, and I think ultimately you do get it, you're waiting for Neville to kind of uncover the real Mr. Rogers. Not that the persona of Mr. Rogers was necessarily false, but we all grew up only knowing 
the TV character, Mr. Rogers, and maybe even as we got older, being a little cynical about it, like not believing that he really could be the the character that he seemed to be on TV. And then you look at Anthony Bourdain, and if you read his work or watched his TV shows, you were always struck by the fact that Bourdain was just always Bourdain. <laughs> you know, there was no real persona, no pretenses, no boundaries, no barriers, just putting himself completely out there. And even though Mr. Rogers on his show did it in a completely different way, I think you see in those two figures a genuine desire to make real connections and to teach and to learn. They they were both people who were always engaged in that process and always being driven by their curiosity. When I was thinking about this movie today and looking a few things up, I was brought back to when he died in June 2018, and President Obama tweeted an image from the show they appeared on together, the episode of Parts Unknown, where they had noodles together in a Hanoi restaurant, and the former president tweeted this, low plastic stool, cheap but delicious noodles, cold Hanoi beer. This is how I'll remember Tony. He taught us about food, but more importantly, about its ability to bring us together. How about this line? To make us a little less afraid of the unknown will miss him. How poignant is that? You know, Kitchen Confidential came out in 2000. I didn't read it just until the past few years. Not too long before his death, I want to say, maybe about a year or so, I started watching Parts Unknown. And even though I started being more adventurous and open-minded about food prior to Kitchen Confidential and prior to becoming more familiar with Bourdain's work on TV... His work did make me more fearless. It actually made me even more open-minded. It made me more embracing of food that my instinct maybe was to reject. And it just gave me this, this trust, really, that if a chef who is his or her own type of artist felt these ingredients work together and was serving it to me, that I needed to trust them. And give it a try. And no, there are still some things that we're all going to find that we just simply don't enjoy the taste of. But that happens few and far between these days because I do have that trust and I do go into it with an open mind and I try it. And so I really do credit Anthony Bourdain for helping to instill or I suppose at least fortify that mindset in me. And this documentary is going to obviously rely on, from what I know, the footage that exists in copious amounts from his TV shows, but also some never aired moments and then some of his own home movies. And I'm sure there's going to be a few talking heads as well, interviews with the people who were closest to him. So I can't wait to see this Bourdain doc. It's going to make its world premiere at Tribeca in June. And then on July 16th, Focus Features will release it exclusively in theaters and then roll it out to premiere on television on CNN and it will stream via HBO Max. I knew this was headed our way, but I didn't realize Morgan Neville was the director. So, yeah, that definitely raises expectations for me. All right. If you're wondering where Adam's Space Jam question is, I'm sure he'll have that when we come back. Plus, an extremely animated edition of Massacre Theater and The Savages, our 40s Noir Marathon Awards. Stay with us. Why? My question is why? <laughs>
can't just like show up to like the after party for a shiva I, and like reap the benefits of the buffet. Didn't. She lost so much weight. Yeah. Do you think she has an eating disorder? That is your major again. Feminism isn't exactly what I call a career. It's not my know? career, it's a lens. You're listening to Film Spotting. That's Rachel Sennett with Fred Melamed in the trailer for Shiva Baby. It's writer-director Emma Seligman's debut feature. Sennett plays a college student who attends an increasingly awkward Jewish funeral service with appearances by her meddling family, her ex-girlfriend, and a man who has been paying her for sexual favors, and that man's family. Shiva Baby is currently available to rent on VOD. And Josh, you do want to put it on our Golden Brick shortlist. That is our annual award for our Overlooked Movie of the Year, a movie that is made by a new director, a new filmmaker, or an emerging one, a filmmaker who's new to us. Yeah, and, you know, Overlooked, this one reason I checked this out is because it had been getting so much praise since it came out. So I don't know if Overlooked entirely qualifies in the grand scheme of things, probably, of all the movies that will come out in 2021. But the reason I really did think of The Golden Brick while watching this is because it so much reminded me of another Golden Brick nominee from a few years past, and that was Trey Edward Schultz's Cretia. Just the the claustrophobia that even with the comedy going on around, and I think there's more comedy in Shiva Baby than in Cretia, um, you just... it. It feels like you can't get out of the movie. It's just so intense here as we're watching Danielle, the Rachel Sennett character, kind of like flee from one room in this house to another and continually chased by questions from everyone there about her job prospects, what she's studying, her dating status, her eating habits, her weight. It's just like everywhere she goes, these questions just get more and more oppressive. Um, And so, you know, the director here, Emma Seligman, she really employs a tight camera to capture this, uh, an incredibly oppressive sound design. The score by Ariel Marks employs these plucked strings and this clicking percussion so that this feels a lot of times like horror. And I know we talked about Cretia in that vein as well. Um, Even though it's always funny, you know, there's some great one-liners you'll get in. You almost always hear, it's a little Altman-esque where you always hear conversations going on in the room. And a lot of it is really funny stuff, but you also sense how it's all seeping into Danielle's ears. and just kind of like becoming overwhelming. Senate is great. Um, she also starred in the short film, Seligman's short film that this is based on. She just walks this line between comedy and horror so well. Has a real bristling energy that's funny, but really gives you a sense that this is a young woman who is at a point in her life so unsure of really who she is or who she wants to be. Exactly when all these people here expect her to be able to tell that to them in like an elevator pitch, right? An elevator pitch about my life and my persona. And she has no idea about that, all those things at this very same time. So, so yeah, it's a really strong, um, strong film. And uh, I'd encourage people if they haven't caught up with it at this point to give it a try. It's Shiva baby. And it is currently available to rent on demand. We did just hear the sad news earlier today as we taped this that Charles Grodin passed away. He was 86 years old. And I suppose I was heartened a little bit to see Josh that in almost every reference to him, 
the headlines referenced him as the star of Midnight Run, a movie that I adore, that I know our producer Sam adores. It's a movie that is actually in the film spotting pantheon. These things go down. And why are you so unpopular with the Chicago Police Department? Two of the more memorable quotes in a movie that is filled with them. Of course, we also had some fun talking about Grodin as the star of Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. And also he appears in Ishtar. Both those movies were part of our Elaine May marathon. Of course, along with those Midnight Run references, there was a lot of Beethoven references. Josh, is that how you think of Charles Grodin? No, Beethoven. So I'm older than the Beethoven generation, as as you are, Adam. So that came after us. The first introduction I had to Charles Grodin was 1981's The Great Muppet Caper. So I've got to credit his work there. Mm -hmm. He was the villain, the sleazy jewel thief. And, you know, Muppets need, they need a seething, slow burn, deadpan straight man to work. And Grodin was just one of the best at that. So, yeah, you've got The Great Muppet Caper, of course, Midnight Run. Of course, The Heartbreak Kid. I always think in The Heartbreak Kid... (laughs) Remember when he's trying to convince his new wife that he's he's having drinks with this, I think it's a former army buddy, but he's really pursuing the oh, younger yeah. woman? Why, why, why can't the wives come? But to an army reunion? Honey, are you kidding? Do you know what the language would get like in an army reunion? This is a, this is a, a, a very rough guy. He's always got a toothpick in his mouth. I just love like the the tale he spins, how descriptive he gets about the buddy. Like the the one he's like he's always got a toothpick in his mouth. <laughs> it's just like just stop, yeah. stop. No, right? it's the details that sell it. <laughs> and Grodin, he he couldn't. His characters couldn't stop. Um, I think about him in Albert Brooks's real life as well. Mm-hmm. He, that simpering grin he had as this father who who essentially sells his family for a season in the spotlight. And yeah, Ishtar, you know, the other May film with uh, just this smarmy CIA operative who's, who's, you know, also so easily flummoxed. I mean, he was so, Grodin was so willing to be the butt of the joke yeah, and, and make the butt of the joke work. You know, you needed his commitment to the joke for it to really work. And he always delivered on that front. Yeah. I think, If you want to see Charles Grodin in a fun turn against type, and honestly, it's been so long since I've seen the movie, I don't even remember precisely what character he plays, but just so smarmy. And you know he's playing a character that is different than the other Grodin characters we came to love on screen because he's got a mustache. It's in the King Kong remake from 1976, the one with Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange. That's right. Oh, man, is he a sleazeball in that fun. Really good (laughs) sleazy fun. I'm not sure that I can say the same about the movie overall. It's it's pretty nuts. And maybe we're seeing only if you're comparing all the King Kong movies over time and you can see what they went for with that movie. But Grodin went for it with that performance. So you're saying it's against type because of the mustache. That's that's. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, and he, he's he was just good at sleazy. A, he's he's such a bad dude in this one. But you're right. We've seen a little bit of sleaze from Mr. Grodin over the years, and we will remember his work fondly here on Film Spotting. So this week we're sharing our summer movie preview. Next week we will talk about an actual summer movie. And we've alluded to this. You've been back to a couple movies that you've seen in the theater. I saw one movie in a theater during the pandemic, and it was Tenet, very Mm -hmm. heavily socially distanced, wearing a mask, of course, very few people in the theater. That was the only movie I saw between, I think, March 11th 
2020 and now mid-May 2021. So this will be, in essence, my my return, the start of a run of seeing movies in a theater again, fully vaccinated as you are, Josh, and things are opening back up here in the city we're going to see A Quiet Place 2, or I'm going to see it because you already have. You've got more time to think about it. We will talk about that next week. It is A Quiet Place Part 2, you know, Part 2, just like The Godfather Part 2. Yes. Yeah. And um, a little spoiler here, it's not quite as good as The Godfather Part 2. No? I, I will say that about it. Yes. Okay. So lower your expectations if that's <laughs> I, if that's where you were going, at. I'll work on that. Also, next week, on-air production meeting time, we don't know what else we're going to do. On the show, we could talk about one of the films we have left in our 7 from 76 series. We have Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA, a movie that is about families, if we want to make a connection, strain to make a connection to A Quiet Place Part 2. There is some genuine terror, I suppose, in Harlan County, USA, though, of a very different variety. Or we could go a little bit more fun route. And talk about Michael Schultz's car wash, Michael Schultz, the director of Cooley High, or Josh, maybe there's something else we're missing entirely. Yeah, I mean, I like to get back to the seven from 76. I don't know that I have a preference between those two. I'm really excited about both of them. I mean, maybe, you know, we're not at the height of summer yet, so maybe we should hold off on car wash. That just seems like such... It seems like a July movie, yes. really, um, in my mind. Okay. So maybe that's one reason to do Harlan County. But yeah, either one of these, I can't wait to get to. Okay. Well, it'll probably be Harlan County. You'll just have to tune in next week and be surprised. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their Fighting Spirits pairing. Yes, they're talking about Mortal Kombat in tandem with John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. I don't, re I don't remember an ice guy in Big Trouble in Little China, so I don't no. know how, I don't know mm. what sort of connections they're going to make there. That's, that's going to be tough for them. <laughs> but they're good at it. They are very good at it. And they are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you ad-free episodes. A few other benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. Our next one is going to be a 70s Robert Altman blind spotting bonus show. We gave our patrons three options, three women, California split and mash. Many people, Josh, really chagrined to find that two such astute, formidable film critics such as ourselves have gone this long into our lives and yet never seen mash. Now, I get to bow out a little bit and say, I actually have watched mash. I did make time for it at some point in my life. So the other two are my big blind spots. You have not seen any of the three. And do you know which film we're going to have to watch? No, I have. Are the results in? The do results are in. They should be official as of a few hours ago. I'm going to click. Wow, this is suspenseful. I'm going to click right now. <laughs> I'm so excited. And it's close. It's maybe the closest vote we've ever had amongst our family members. Three okay. titles. That means that means we're going to disappoint a lot of people. That's I right. like where this is going already. Three titles, and they all got just around a third of the vote. Coming in in last place, though, is MASH, 31%. Hmm. The runner-up, California Split, 33%. 
No Elliott Gold for us. Three women did take it, 36%. Okay. That's great. That's the one personally seemed most intriguing. Obviously, MASH, the bigger blind spot. So probably been would have been more responsible for me to do that mm-hmm. one. But uh, yeah, I'm really curious about three women. Yeah, I am as well. You really can't go wrong with any of those. So we will have that bonus episode here soon exclusively for our family members. And we also allow our family members to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. Trivia spotting 10 to Yuma just took place last week, and we have to congratulate Nick Allen from RogerEbert.com and his team, great team name, Tokyo Drift from the Book of Saw. (laughs) That was a good one. Our listeners are very clever, and he had a great team with Alan Berry, Albert Malafront won for the second time, Jim Mancall won for the third time, Jim Lakowski here in Chicago won for the second time, then Josh Youngerman, Mark Roseman, and Ross Bratton were all first-time winners, and Ross... I'm pretty sure has played all 10 trivia spottings and he knows his stuff and he's really given it maximum effort and he's always come away short, Josh, not this time on Nick's team. He's a trivia spotting champion. Well, and and to that point, I got to tell you what Nick said. I ran into him at the quiet place part two screening. So I congratulated him on his win. And he said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, it's it's really humbling to see you and Adam just, you know, kind of kind of flail about while the listeners know all the answers. <laughs> and I, I don't think those were his, his exact words, but that's pretty accurate. much what he was he was getting at. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much the trivia spotting experience. It really is. I mean, that's that's kind of the fun. If you would like to see us flail about, it will only cost you five dollars <laughs> a month for the membership and a trivia spotting ticket. Nick and his team also took down Mariah Gates. She of the yes. three times in a row winning trivia spotting seemed unstoppable actually did finish second place this time to Nick Allen. So congratulations, Nick and his squad. And we want to thank all of our special guest captains. Griffin Newman was back from blank check along with Mariah and Nick. And then we had three first timers, your podcasting partner, Sarah Welch Larson, her new book out, Becoming Alien. We had a film writer at large and a major contributor to RogerEber.com, Roxana Haddadi and slash filmcast Devendra Hardaware. Also, participated now his partner dave chen has been on as a guest captain and now we just got to figure out how to get them both on the show at the same time yeah that would be great we got to make that happen if you haven't participated yet we are going to make tickets available to trivia spotting goes to 11 our 11th edition i think that was your your title there adam i love it very it's going to be saturday june 5th and so those tickets they should be on sale i believe you can Mm -hmm. either get tickets to be on one of the teams, an active player, or we do offer spectator tickets if the pressure, if you don't want to, maybe flame out is what Nick said. (laughs) Adam and I flame out often. If you don't want (laughs) to risk that, but you just want to watch the fun, watch the proceedings, you can also get a spectator ticket. So those will be on sale again for Trivia Spotting Goes to 11, taking place Saturday, June 5th. Now, if you want to become a member of the Film Spotting family on Patreon. We are offering annual memberships. So rather than month to month, this gives you a 10% discount. You can sign up at patreon.com slash filmspotting. Let's move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Did you? 
I mean, when I was a kid, did you ever love me or anything? You think Sonia Henny's mother loved her? Poor f you. I didn't stay home making apple brown Bettys. No, I made you a champion. Knowing you'd hate me for it. That's the sacrifice a mother makes. I wish I'd had a mother like me instead of nice. Nice gets you sh I didn't like my mother either. So what? I f gave you a gift. He cursed me. monster spilled milk baby that was allison janney and margot robbie in 2017's i tanya written by stephen rogers and directed by craig gillespie along with that massacre we shared our top five 70s movie moms and talked about chantelle ackerman's news from home part of our seven from 76 series so why that scene from i tanya well here's ethan gordon in toronto who says as one of the 21 lost souls who identified last week's Walter Brennan Love Fest, I was almost disappointed that you chose a movie from the 21st century for this week's Massacre Theater. However, if we are on the subject of notable movie moms, none may have stood out in the last five years as much as Allison Janney's foul-mouthed Lavana, the mother of infamous figure skater Tanya Harding. Besides the giveaway name drop of Sonia Henney, the biggest clue was definitely the plethora of curse words so elegantly costumed by producer Sam. <laughs> I just wish one of you took a stab, or maybe a lead pipe in this case, at Tanya small town Oregon accent maybe you can spin this performance into a separate list of most memorable sport parents in film as Dennis Hopper in Hoosiers Denzel Washington and he got game and Will Smith and the upcoming Williams sisters biopic could all maybe crack that category thank you Ethan you've done the work for us the heavy lifting's done for that top five <laughs> yes I like that and Ethan I mean I can barely pronounce Oregon so I don't know how I'm ever I mean, going to do the accent if you didn't make the self-deprecating joke I was going to <laughs> <laughs> beat you to it darwin m also wrote us josh and he said it's got to be i tanya the connection to this week's episode is of course the top five list of 70s movie mothers alice and Janney choose so much scenery it felt like the academy had to give her the oscar if they didn't she probably would have ate them too that's a funny <laughs> line darwin but i will accept no alice and Janney slander here on the show i think he's on to something of course you do reach into the more brimming than Walter Brennan film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh. Our winner is Kevin Butler right here in Chicago. Kevin Butler, like the former Bears kicker? Yeah, I was just, as I was reading, I was like, wait a minute. I vaguely remember a Bears. Yeah, he's huge though, right? Wasn't, did he win a Super Bowl yeah. with him? 85 Bears, Kevin Butler. Man, we are really living up to our billing as a Chicago show right now, aren't we? Was it? Was he on the shuffle? Was he one of the shufflers? I'm pretty Super Bowl sure. Shufflers? I'm pretty sure he was. I don't think this Kevin Butler is that Kevin Butler, but we will congratulate him. Nevertheless, Kevin, email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Now you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Look at Jiff, right up here. Now we're starting here. Uh-huh. And up okay. and roll set. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, where we are changing a significant name, and only hardcore fans of this performer and hardcore fans of Josh Larson film critic. <laughs> That's a hit. Of We'll get my the top reference. 10 lists. <laughs> okay. See, now you're just putting it on a platter for those 17 listeners who know what you're all referencing. Right. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but we did change the name to try to make it a little less obvious. And 
We'll see if everybody can get the pretty obvious connection to this week's show, our summer movie preview. Josh, I'm going to start it off. So you're going to give me the action. All right, here we go. And action. Doyle, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea. I am hero of men. Huh? What? What? It's actually shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top. Hero of men. Go. Uh, uh, I am... Sorry, sorry, sorry. And women. Men and women. Both. All. Not a guy-girl thing. You know, Doyle is the hero to all. You're doing great. What? No, I'm here to... Oh, yes. Of course, of course. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Doyle always has time for his fans. And... And... Scene. Scene. I'm a fan of that performance, Josh. You had the right... (laughs) Thank you. I mean... Good pace. It may have been terrible, but it was one take, so... If yes. nothing else, efficient. Yes, it was. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 7th. It's going to be hard to slow down now. Let's see. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I told her everything, but she didn't believe my story. I should have saved my breath. That's the greatest cock and bull story I ever heard. So he fell out of his car. Say, who do you think you're talking to, a hick? Listen, mister, I've been around, and I know a wrong guy when I see one. What'd you do, kiss him with a wrench? Now, wait a minute. What I told you was true. What'd you do, kiss him with a wrench? So, so good. And Savage there in 1945's Detour, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Savage, I think we agree, Josh, one of the great discoveries of our 40s noir Marathon. Fair to say I had not heard of her before this. Truly a discovery. We loved her so much. We named the End of Marathon Awards for her. And it just was so fitting with some of the bad people that we got to watch on screen. A bevy of bad people throughout these six films. So it is time for The Savages. We'll share our favorite supporting and lead performances, our favorite overall scenes, our favorite noir touches, and what we consider the best picture of the marathon. Those marathon titles were 1940's The Letter, directed by William Wyler, starring Betty Davis, Frank Tuttle's This Gun for Hire from 42, starring Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd, Otto Preminger's Laura from 1944, that's with Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews, Ulmer's Detour from 1945, and we closed it out with 1947's The Lady from Shanghai, directed by and starring Orson Welles, with Rita Hayworth, followed by... 1949's White Heat from director Raoul Walsh, starring the one, the only, Jimmy Cagney. Josh, we will start it off with our Savage for Best Supporting Performance, a category that you could almost also call Best Femme Fatale. And I say almost Mm. because there's a couple films that don't quite fit in so neatly. One of those would be The Letter. There, Betty Davis is the star. You've got Herbert Marshall. You've got James Stevenson and maybe even Sen Young as Ong in that film to consider. And then in White Heat, the movie we did close out the marathon with, in addition to Virginia Mayo, you could look at Edmund O'Brien as a best supporting performer contender. In the middle, though, you've got Veronica Lake, you've got Gene Tierney, you've got Ann Savage, and you've got Rita Hayworth. You could go back to Laura, of course, and also think about Clifton Webb for this category, Josh, but I'm guessing you did not go with Mr. Webb. 
I didn't considered him. I considered strongly someone you mentioned there, Sen Young, in the letter. Uh, his Ong, I thought, was just such a fascinating character, this Malay assistant to the lawyer who's representing Betty Davis. He's the go-between for the British and the Malay factions in this story. And we talked about his his obsequiousness, you know, how he was servile, but in this mocking way. I love that performance. This isn't even a performance so much I loved, but a character who I thought about, Tully Marshall in This Gun for Hire. He's the conniving owner of a chemical company. Yes. How he rolls around in that futuristic wheelchair right. like he's some sort of supervillain. Yeah, yeah. Seems like the model for so many like sci-fi villains that followed, right? Absolutely. Or even Bond movie villains. Yeah, he was a blast. I thought about I actually thought about a an object in this category, Adam. I thought about Laura's portrait in Laura. I mean, Jean Tierney is good, but really that portrait of her does a lot of the work in the movie's it first does. half. But yeah, let's stop messing around. The Savage <laughs> goes to Savage. We spent most of our review praising Anne Savage's portrayal of Vera, this troubled hitchhiker that Tom Neal picks up to his great regret. I don't think that I referenced earlier what one of the male characters says about her. If I did, it's good enough to repeat. He says there ought to be a law against dames with claws. I mean, most femme fatales, they use deception, they use seduction, and Vera dabbles in that. But really, really Savage just brings the claws to this movie. And it was so fun. Brute force. Though though not physical, even though she is imposing in a way none of the other candidates – we've been talking about are but yeah there is something to her i mentioned during our review of detour that reminds me of betty davis from the letter in terms of just kind of her her power her maliciousness that comes through but the other thing that reminds me of davis is how she says everything with such purpose like it's never just a conversation everything's an insinuation and Mm. she's always just setting him up to hang himself almost every line she says she knows something he doesn't and that's really the the kind of twisted fun of watching Anne savage in detour had to be the pick again we named the awards after her that's how much of a discovery she was for us so we go from that obvious choice to another one that probably isn't much of a surprise lead performance you do have to consider betty davis in the letter Alan Ladd in This Gun for Hire, Dana Andrews and Laura, Tom Neal in Detour, Orson Welles, the lady from Shanghai, or, you know, you could go Jimmy Cagney in White Heat. Is that what you did, Josh? Yeah, you could and you probably should. I mean, I really did like Alan Ladd in This Gun for Hire. Without him, we wouldn't have gotten Elaine Delon in Melville's nope. Le Samurai, a performance that I've I've adored for years, and it wasn't until this marathon I realized where it really came from. Uh, Betty Davis, though, she gave... Cagney a run for his money, you know, as the accused murderer in the letter. It's maybe one of her least sympathetic parts, which we know from our previous marathon is really saying something. But we also know that's when she's at her best, Mm -hmm. when she's not entirely sympathetic. So as good as she was, though, yeah, no one was going to take this from Cagney in White Heat. Uh, His, you know, we talked about his size and part, part of why that's crucial is because he seems, it's almost like he has more energy than that relatively small body can contain. If he was a bigger guy, it wouldn't be as startling to see all of this emanating from him. Right. So that's part of part of his presence. And it made me wonder, Adam, now that we've you know pretty much given these awards to both Cagney and Savage, do you think one movie could contain both of them? <laughs> Would that be possible? I'd like to see it. I'd like to see <laughs> I mean, a movie yeah. try. 
Wouldn't you? It's interesting. I found in 2007, Time Magazine did a list of top 25 greatest villains, okay, of all time. Mm-hmm. Both Savage and Cagney were actually on that list. Really? So good for them. Yeah, good for them for that and Savage poll. But yeah, my best lead performance is going to James Cagney. Well, we talked about it a little bit during our conversation about White Heat, that there is a humanity, there is a vulnerability that Cagney brings to that performance, despite playing such a villain and at times even a sadistic one. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever do this. I don't think... It probably happens often for either of us, but there are probably moments where you're watching a movie and it may not even be one thing that a certain actor or actress is doing, but you just think for a second, you kind of get outside your body for a second. You think about the absurdity of, of acting, (laughs) like the person pretending to do what they're doing with all those people on the set around them and how vulnerable they have to be, how they have to expose themselves in such an awkward way. Everybody's just buying into this illusion of what's happening. And you hear actors and actresses talk all the time about needing to feel comfortable on a set and the environment that the director provides so they can be that vulnerable. And I'm bringing this all up because I was thinking about that in a good way, not in a distracted way. When I saw that breakdown scene in the mess hall, when Cagney, that's the one when Cagney gets the news that his mom, who he let's put it mildly reveres is dead. Imagine Cagney in that scene, Cagney, the person, the actor in front of all those hundreds of extras having to reveal himself in that way, having to be that emotional, this this actor who has this persona of being larger than life, despite his stature, of being one of the ultimate tough guys on screen. And in that moment, all of that just disappears. It all completely dissolves. Talk about buying into the illusion. I, I completely bought every second of Cagney's fragility in that scene. Yeah, and the reason it works, and it's not this out-of-nowhere outburst, is because he's established that volatility already. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a different sort of vol- volatility. It's, you know, it's in violence. It's towards the other members of his gang, or it's towards Verna, the Virginia Mayo character. But we already know that this is a guy who feels everything and expresses it hugely. Mm-hmm. And so when he does that in that moment, even though I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, you, you have you try to imagine what it must be like to be on set and see someone doing that. It fits perfectly with the film and more importantly with the character. We then go to the Savage for Noir Touch, a category that probably speaks for itself. And some of these options that I'm sure we both considered, and I'm sure we have some unique ones as well, could probably also be contenders for our next category, which is best overall scene. But I thought about the opening scene of the letter for this category, Josh, and I thought about this gun for hire and the conversation that Ladd and Lake have on the stairs in that old plant at the end of the movie where you see the the shadows from the staircase and all those metal bars that almost feel like a jail cell, like they're already trapped together in that space. I think about at the end when we see Lidecker, speaking of Clifton Webb, at the end of Laura, when we realize who he really is and he's on the stairs and there's two Lideckers, making it even more ominous because of that great use of shadows there in that scene. And then, of course, we've talked about Detour a little bit. And 
one of my sort of contenders because it's such an odd noir touch is the way Ulmer places so much of the action in daytime. There's so much sun and there's so much sweat, right? Like we're used to feeling that noir films are often oppressive, but in a way that maybe is a little bit different than what we get in Detour. So a noir touch in terms of it being an unconventional noir choice, the use of sun in that movie. But what did you think about yeah, I did try to separate it from the scene category by focusing mostly on details, so specifics. And one of those for me that came to mind was the aquarium silhouettes in The Lady from Shanghai. That yeah. kind of, you know, strange sequence. So many sequences in that movie were strange, but of the two of them just uh, against the creatures floating behind. And you mentioned it in This Gun for Hire, Adam, that whole race through the dark factory and the foggy rail yard. It was more the set there than anything else mm -hmm. that I thought of as a noir touch um, really reminded me of, you know, a German expressionist masterpiece like Metropolis. You could see the influence there on, uh, on this gun for hire. And how about just the blinds in the letter? So many blinds, you know, I think mm -hmm. even in that opening scene, you're talking about William Wyler, the director there, cinematographer, Tony Gaudio, making use of them, um, use of blinds in so many scenes in the letter. And then here's, here's something a little different, not a visual touch, but a plot touch that was very noirish to me. Laura's reveal that Laura is alive. You know, that just reminded me of sort of the twists we get in Chinatown, something mm -hmm. clearly influenced by so many of these movies, but the winner, what I went for or went with in this category comes from detour and it's Al Roberts' eyes. This is early on. It's kicking off an early flashback mm -hmm. of the main character, Al Roberts, and the director, Edgar G. Ulmer. He tightens in on Roberts' face as the lights around him go dark. Everything goes dark, leaves this circle of illumination around his eyes. And it's not only so arresting visually, but it completely captures the panic of a man who isn't entirely guilty, but just guilty enough. He's just guilty enough mm -hmm. for what we need in that story. So that that's my pick for this category, Al Roberts' eyes. Yeah, so I actually went with basically the same scene as you, just a, oh, slightly, really? just a slightly different moment to emphasize. It's that whole scene, though, because I love okay. everything about the way that scene reveals itself as so expressionistic. And that's mm -hmm. a key hallmark of noir, but... Ulmer really pushes it in yes. that scene where everything disappears around him. He's shrouded now completely in darkness, except for that strip of light that is right across his eyes. And then we start to hear his inner monologue. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. You can change the scenery. But sooner or later, you'll get a whiff of perfume where somebody will say a certain phrase or maybe hum something. Then you're licked again. I love that moment. And then that transition to the past that I talked about during our review, where you actually tilt down to his coffee mug from his face to the coffee mug. And the mug in that moment seems like it's four feet tall, like it fills up the entire frame and you instantly know. If you weren't already cued into it based on the lighting change, you instantly know, okay, something really dark and kind of sinister and weird is about to unfold. Like we're entering a completely different 
psychological space mm-hmm. once we once we see that happen with the coffee mug. So yeah, everything about that scene for me is the the kind of most noir element of this entire marathon. And yet that's one of the great things about Detour. It's unique, I think, to that film. I don't think we really get a moment that fantastic, if you will, almost, or blatantly expressionistic in any of the other films. Maybe except yeah, for maybe not. maybe maybe except for one scene that may come up here actually as we get to uh, yeah I think I yeah. know where you're going <laughs> as we get to another one that's probably obvious and really only couldn't be the pick if you and I were trying really hard to not be too obvious with our choice as we think about the best overall scene from the marathon and just a few ones that I considered. I went back again to the opening scene of the letter. And of course, I thought about Top of the World Ma from White Heat. And I thought about not just the aquarium from Lady from Shanghai, but the great cliff scene where Orson Welles' character gets the the proposal for the first time. And the way that's shot where it seems like any second they could just tumble right off that cliff into the water. But of course, you got to talk about the mirror maze shootout. Yes. And that's the pick, isn't it, Josh? Well, for best scene, I mean, I I can talk about first why I don't think it fits for noir moment because it's it's definitely noirish, but it's its own wackadoo thing. (laughs) I mean, it's its own genre. This scene is its own genre. Um, That said, it was a runner up for me okay? uh, because, you know, I think it kind of goes back to as much as I appreciated the the insanity of it and the craftsmanship of it. It was also kind of self-incriminating in that way I talked about how it sees it's it presents Rita Hayworth as irresistible and despicable at the same time. And that was the tension I struggled with in in The Lady from Shanghai. But certainly it was a runner up for me in this category. The other one I really thought about comes from Laura, and it's pretty much the final shot, really, um, that swish pan uh, from the murderer who's just been shot by police. We get this swish to Laura and then it fo- it's followed by this camera push into this grandfather clock mm-hmm. behind them that's been damaged from taking a bullet in the gunfire exchange. So just a really, it's kind of the director Otto Preminger kind of holds his cards close to the vest for much of that movie and, and then unleashes, you know, a lot of uh, stylistic choices, including that shot in the in the climax there. The winner, though, for me, Adam, comes from uh, the letter and it's the exchange. This is the movie showcase sequence, I think, the showdown between Betty Davis's Leslie and Gail Sundergaard's Mrs. Hammond. Yeah. So Mrs. Hammond is the wife of the man Leslie was having an affair with, yep. the man Leslie shot. Um, Mrs. Hammond now... For those who might not have watched along with us, she has this incriminating letter that Leslie wrote, and she agrees to sell it to her only if Leslie will make the exchange herself. So they meet. Here's more blinds in this movie. The moonlight splitting through the slats of those blinds. There's a breeze tinkling through a set of wind chimes in the room. And we talked about the costume design here. Leslie shrouded in lace like she's an innocent coming for this Mm -hmm. meeting. And then we cut to another doorway. These beads... And Mrs. Hammond appears. She's darkly dressed. She's very imposing. We get that abstract score by Max Steiner. I mean, director William Wyler, again, with cinematographer Tony Gaudio, doing some stellar noir work here, I think, and just amazing work overall. So I went with the exchange in the letter for my scene. Yeah, no, it's another one that was definitely in mind as I was going through some of my favorite moments from this marathon because I remember so distinctly that look on both those actresses' faces and the way Weiler draws out 
the tension. And not only that, if you recall from our conversation, I feel like that scene really does accomplish what I think the movie suggests that character wants most of all and why I feel like the ending doesn't quite work and feels tacked on as some kind of punishment for the character. I feel like in that scene, we see Betty Davis in a way we've never seen Betty Davis before, which is actually in her own way obsequious and kind of has to has to prostrate herself in front of Mrs. Hammond. And when Gail Sondergaard looks down on her, it really feels like she gets she gets what she really needs from that character. She gets from her, you know, really the acknowledgement almost that she that she has done something wrong. And she knows she knows truly how guilty she is in that moment. Mrs. Crosby, Mrs. Hammond has a further request. She wishes you to walk over to her. Now look here, Aunt Jesus. Now, you? Howard, please. It's essentially a confession on Betty Davis's part without really saying anything at all. That brings us to best picture. And I'm curious, Josh, if you had a clear winner here or if it was a tough choice. I was looking back at Letterboxd and I noticed that you gave, I think, at least three movies in this marathon, four out of five stars. So it must have been a bit of a tough choice. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's, you know, really maybe not a wrong choice in this marathon, maybe even if I did like uh, one or two a little bit less than the others. But I ended up going with Detour. And I think that was my choice because I guess because it was the biggest discovery, not just Ann Savage, but also the director, Edgar G. Ulmer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not very familiar with that name. So I love that it was such a great discovery. But also, I think it was just the noiriest, yeah. you know, it's at, but it wasn't cliche, as you already no. talked about when you mentioned the daytime scenes. It's it's not that it's just a collection of noir cliches, but somehow it imbued the ethos um, the most of all of these movies. We've got Anne Savage, as we said, shaking up the femme fatale trope mm-hmm. again. Not, it's not cliche. She's not playing who you would envision as a femme fatale, but twisting that in her own way. Tom Neal, so good, just sweating guilty bullets throughout this thing from the beginning to the end. And then Ulmer's inspired filmmaking choices. As you said, he pushes it here. Another moment that could have been a great noir touch or even scene is the vision that Roberts has when he's looking in the Cairo's rearview mirror and he sees the woman he's pursuing who left him from New York. He sees her on stage performing these giant silhouettes of musicians loom over her. I mean, that that's as almost as expressionistic and um, abstract as anything we do get in The Lady from Shanghai. I think bottom line for me, though, for Detour, it's how it embraces the idea of fatalism Mm -hmm. that's so essential to noir. I mean, a lot of these movies we watched, when you think back on it, end in death for the major characters. But why does this feel like the bleakest film of the bunch? Yeah. At the end, right? It and it never really wavers from that bleakness throughout. So I went with went with Detour for Best Picture. So for me, it was tough because for a different reason, this is maybe the first marathon ever where I certainly felt rewarded by it, but I felt kind of the same about all of the movies. There wasn't mm. one or two that were kind of more on the low end, and then one or two that were on the higher end. They're all kind of about the same. So I had to think about it in some different ways. The movie I was most glad I finally saw is White Heat. That was definitely one I considered. As far as a straight noir, maybe a little bit of an odd contender or maybe a surprising choice, but my runner-up is actually 
this gun for hire. And it's because okay. it's because of Lad and Lake, the most sizzle on screen together as a pair. And then it's what you said earlier about Lad as a precursor to Alain Delon in Le Samurai. I, I really like that gruff character and what he's wrestling with and the way Lad pulls it off and does to an extent transform over the course of the movie to the extent that the noir will allow him to. But I'm with you, Josh. The most memorable movie, the one I think I would be most eager to revisit and the one I would be most in a hurry to tell someone else they had to see if they could only watch one of these yeah. 40 noirs films. It's Detour. Because yeah, that's of, a good way to put it. Because of Ulmer's creativity with his budget. And you're right, because of the bleakness of it. It is suffocating in its own way. It is the most fatalistic by far. And I think it's the most provocative, too, as far as a movie that I think is is really mostly functioning on a level of kind of sleazy, dark, grim fun, where I don't know if it's schadenfreude. I don't know that we're reveling in the pain of the main character, but you're kind of watching it almost like, man, he's having the worst time. I'm glad I'm not that guy. There is an element mm -hmm. of that with Detour. But at the same time, I do think it suggests something kind of profound in the sense that there's something rotten at the core of the American spirit. This kind of take whatever you can get, whatever you want ethos, because if you don't, someone else is going to take it from you. And you know what? We're all just going to die anyway, right? That's that fatalism again. We talked about the line she has in Savage's character where she says something about it being the ninth inning. The game's going to be over. It's going to end for all of us, and I'm going to get mine before it happens. And then even that guilt that you mentioned with Tom Neal's character that I think does kind of push back on you a little bit as a viewer and makes you think about what would you do in that situation? Would you be as quick to, to rationalize and do those bad things just like he does or, or not. And I love that detour pushes those buttons in addition to being really grimy, sweaty, malicious fun. Yeah. I like, I like that way of thinking about it for best pictures, which one of these would you recommend? I mean, it probably doesn't apply to all marathons we do, but maybe the genre ones, that's, that's kind of a good litmus test of this group that we watch to represent this genre. Where would you start? What do you have to see? What yes. can't you miss? And yeah, for me too, it's detour. If you'd like more information about the forties Noir marathon and our previous marathons, marathons like contemporary Iranian cinema, John Cassavetes, Joseph von Sternberg, and Marlena Dietrich, and many, many more. You can find all of those, including these awards at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can regale me and my queen with some myth? The trailer there for David Lowry's The Green Knight, starring Dev Patel, a movie originally scheduled for early 2020 release. It's finally coming to theaters in July. People 
are pretty hyped for this one, Josh. I did just watch the trailer today. Hey, I'm all in on Dev Patel as movie star and do enjoy much of David Lowry's work. So I'm eager to see it. And it's one of the options we gave our listeners in the current film spotting poll. We asked you if you could only see one film this summer, which one would it be? The options, Josh, we gave them are. A Quiet Place Part 2 opens next week. We'll have a review. In the Heights, which opens June 11. F9, which, Adam, I can't believe you're not eagerly anticipating. Mm. That's June 25. The MCU is back. Are we excited? Black Widow is July 9. Space Jam, A New Legacy. Adam is not excited. July 16. The Green Knight, as we mentioned, is July 30. And then Candyman. Can't wait for this one. From director Nia DaCosta, who, yes, is a trivia spotting veteran. That's not coming until August 27. We did give the category of other as an option as well. You know, I don't really care about the MCU. I just care about the Florence Pugh universe. Ah, that's right. She is in it, isn't she? I, I am looking forward to seeing her work in that film along with Scarlett Johansson. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We will share the results on next week's show. I don't think any of those titles have come up so far in our actual picks as part of our summer movie preview, our top five questions about the summer movie season. But we both do have two more chances left to talk about a movie that people have actually heard of. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to one with my number one question. OK, uh, my number two wasn't in the poll, but I think people have heard of this. It's a Pixar movie. It's Luca. And my question is, can Luca live up to its influences. So the director here is Enrico Casarosa. He made the 2011 short La Luna. And here's the story, again, synopsis from IMDb. On the Italian Riviera, an unlikely but strong friendship grows between a human and a sea monster disguised as a human. So far, so promising. But the expectations bar for me was raised when I read this in Rolling Stone's summer preview. Apparently, Casarosa has described the film as, quote, paying homage to Fellini with a dash of Miyazaki in the mix. Strong words, but also music to my ears. Obviously, I love Miyazaki, and I really like the idea of animated Fellini. Actually, after reading that, I went down a rabbit hole just wondering if Fellini had been involved in animation, couldn't remember anything, found references to a 1944 animated short he worked on, Hello Jeep. But I had to stop. Once it got to like needing to translate things from Italian to get more information, I just cut myself off. So at any rate, I, Fellini and animation just seem like a natural fit to me in my mind. And so I love everything that seems to be going on here. I'm on a Pixar high after last year's Soul. So really excited for this one. Luca is out on June 18. Yeah, I read about Luca in some of those movie previews. And Josh, I'm with you. I think it sounds delightful. I am in. I like some of those different references that you mentioned there. And it's Pixar. So, of course, I'm going to see it. I'm going to go to my number two movie question, and I'm going back to the realm of movies that you will not bring your kids to. My question is, what will I see in all light everywhere? Mm. And it sounds like, Josh, maybe you read a little bit about this movie as well, and you understand where I'm going with that question and the emphasis on what I will see. Here's the blurb from Sundance where it played and won an award back in January. 
The observer effect is a term used in physics to describe the process in which the act of observation disturbs the system that's being observed. Humans are such observers, and we have our inherent limitations, biases, and blind spots that skew how we perceive and interpret. In his remarkable kaleidoscopic essay film, Theo Anthony investigates the correlation between how we see things and the tools and practices involved in the act of seeing. All Light Everywhere directs our gaze to some fascinating, often surprising connections among technology, weapons, and mechanics of motion, as well as the effect of those factors on the ways in which we construct our realities. Without being prescriptive or didactic, Anthony skillfully points out how politicized the act of seeing is and just how flawed our framing methods can be. So another documentary choice for me, a documentary very much about one of my favorite topics, which is the notion of reality in documentary cinema, filmmakers who come at it in a very meta way, questioning the very act of filmmaking that they're engaged in, and really this notion of truth and whether any kind of objective reality is really possible or at least can be captured by a camera, which of course is also being wielded by a human being. And this documentary is probably best described from what I've read about it as free form. And you know that it is if you hear some of the trailer or watch the trailer, but also you heard me read that entire synopsis and Nowhere in it did I directly reference what you will most often see mentioned in conjunction with descriptions of this movie taken from another source is this quote. It's about the history of police body cameras and surveillance. So, again, you heard everything I just said and police body cameras and surveillance was never directly mentioned. So this is a movie that is going to be tackling this subject (laughs) And this notion of the observer effect and notions of power in some pretty interesting and experimental ways. Cameras don't take sides. Just remember that. We're mixing apples and oranges here. Oh, it's all AI. Yeah. This software is going to learn. If you look around here, there are no secrets here. The community is not at all interested in being surveilled. This is all we asking for is to deter. That's all. From what history does the future dream? Our friend Nick Allen, we referenced him earlier, one of our trivia spotting special guest captains, saw it at Sundance and Really liked it, saying All Light Everywhere is brilliant, vital criticism about American policing that also speaks to the limitless artistic potential of nonfiction filmmaking. And honestly, even if I didn't know that or hadn't read anything about this movie at all, I'd want to see it just because it's the next film by the filmmaker Theo Anthony who made Rat Film in 2016, which, speaking of experimental, he explored the rat problem in Baltimore, but did it through the lens of urban planning and racism in America and in that city specifically. So this is a really inventive filmmaker whose work, I think, is going to be challenging us for many years to come. I mentioned it played at Sundance. It actually won a special jury award for nonfiction experimentation and it's going to be in theaters june 4th unfortunately i don't see anything more about when it will come to streaming or if it will in the near future but hopefully we'll get a chance to see it here in chicago that's all light everywhere yeah i'm looking forward to wrestling with with this one this is the actually the other title 
that Abiel Chessie mentioned as an, a highlight from the True False Fest as well. So yeah, a lot of folks are high on this one. All right, my number one question has to do with a movie that was in our poll, Adam. Will I catch Green Knight Fever? Because yes, everyone seems to be pre-in love with this movie. I haven't watched any of the trailers because I, I just don't want to spoil things. The basic plot, I do, from what I understand, I do know Deb Patel stars here as a knight in King Arthur's court, takes on the mystical foe of the title. And anytime any bit of news has come out about this in the past like year or two, you mentioned how long it's been delayed, film Twitter just shivers with pleasure, you know? <laughs> and I get it. I understand. Well past time, Deb Patel becomes a major star. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't clear before, it should have been clear with the personal history of David Copperfield last year. I'm always up for a good sword and sorcerer movie. Maybe they'll make it more like John Borman's Excalibur than, I don't know, Heath Ledger's A Knight's Tale or Martin Lawrence's Black Knight. I'd, I'd like the Borman style a little bit more. I have seen some of the imagery here or there, and yes, it looks incredibly enticing. The supporting cast, also enticing, Joel Edgerton, who's very good right now in the Underground Railroad. Also, Alicia Vikander of Ex Machina. But yeah, you mentioned it, Adam. The writer-director, David Lowry. This may be closer to Pete's Dragon mm -hmm. than a ghost story. Or ideally, here's my real hope. It's somewhere wonderfully in between those two things. So I don't really know what I'm in for for The Green Knight. I understand the expectation about it. Yeah. I bet I will get more excited as it gets closer here and I will join the crowd. It's coming to us July 30. Yeah, I will be right there with you, Josh. Now, my number one movie question in the movie I'm going to reference is one I think you will also be curious about, though I don't think you'll be edging me out to the front of the line. My question is, how out of sight will no sudden move be? The biggest reward of preparing for this list was scouring all these websites and discovering that there's a new Steven Soderbergh movie coming out. Oh, Really? Yeah. See, I just assume there's one every month now. Well, so. <laughs> accurate. I mean, that that is fair. But I reference, of course, there in the question, out of sight, still my favorite Steven Soderbergh movie. And there's a reason for it. Soderbergh himself said when asked about making this movie No Sudden Move, which is a heist movie. The last time I shot a movie in Detroit with a great script and a great cast, things worked out pretty well. Yeah, they did. He made a masterpiece. This one, though, unlike Out of Sight, is a period piece. It's set back in 1955 and is about a group of small-time criminals who are hired to steal a document. Seems like it's simple, Josh. I don't know if you've heard this before. It's a heist that seems like it'll be simple, mm. and then something goes wrong. I think you're the only one that can make a move. I have a proposition for you. It's never your fault, is it? This whole thing is offensive. Do you think I'm a schemer? Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. I'm sure there's going to be some interesting sociopolitical elements to the movie being set in Detroit in the mid-50s, a time where, you know, some of the big auto plants are starting to close. You've got this growing class and racial divide. So it's going to be a grittier piece. It is going to be more akin to something like Out of Sight or even maybe kind of the limey versus the breezy flash of something like Ocean's Eleven. But the cast 
just like with Ocean's Eleven, is also a big, big reason to see this movie. And I guess Clooney, Jack Foley himself, Danny Ocean himself, was originally set to star and had to back out due to the pandemic. But listen to this cast, even without Clooney. Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, Amy Simons, John Hamm, David Harbour, Ray Liotta, Kieran Culkin, Julia Fox, Brendan Fraser, Bill Duke, and... Supposedly, Matt Damon also does make an appearance in No Sudden Move. And I referenced at the start of this list the idea that Abel Ferrara is considered by some to be one of the most important filmmakers currently living. Well, Steven Soderbergh truly is one of the most important directors living. And No Sudden Move, it's going to come out July 1st on HBO Max. So there, I did it. Fun, a crime movie, a good old-fashioned Steven Soderbergh heist movie is part of my number one movie question of the summer. And you are not kidding. I had not heard of this. So as soon as you said the title, I started looking it up and that cast just keeps going and going and going. You know, like yep. usually like you hit the third or fourth name and you're like, okay, um, I think I know who that is. And this is just all of them. <laughs> Amazing. Mm -hmm. This is going to be great. Any other questions or any other titles you want to sneak in? Josh? I mean, you know, back at the top, we talked about maybe we're gun shy because we, is this summer really going to happen of movies? I almost didn't even want to mention the French Dispatch because I know. as far as I know, it, it is playing Cannes, right. the Cannes Film Festival. I haven't seen a theatrical release date after that. Let's just stop talking about it and maybe it'll happen. Um, the one repeat worth mentioning from my 2021 movie preview, I had asked, what is M. Night Shyamalan up to yeah. with old that comes out July 23, and yeah, really, I don't have a question for it, but maybe the film I'm most anticipating is Candyman. Um, just uh, mentioned it a couple of times. That mm -hmm. is such a fascinating property, the original. I cannot wait to see what Nia DaCosta does with it. Yeah, I'm with you on Candyman if my heart can take it, and I am with you on the French Dispatch. You know, I watched the trailer for the first time today, and I've always been a Wes Anderson fan as I did rewatch his films with my two oldest kids last year, I think during the pandemic, right before Holden went off to college, and I discovered that truly I was an idiot before, and I really adore the Grand Budapest Hotel. Watching the French Dispatch trailer now, I was just like injected into my veins. I'm ready. <laughs> like, I, so, I need this movie. I need this let's movie. Let's hope we get it. And let's hope we get it. And it could have been fodder for this preview because as you mentioned the talk is that it will play can and then hopefully a release will shortly follow maybe july so fingers crossed oh wow oh that would be so great it would those are our top five questions about the summer movie season please send us your questions or your most anticipated titles along with any other feedback about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net josh that's our show it is. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. That's also where you can vote in the Film Spotting poll. What is your most anticipated movie of the summer? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend... On digital release, a movie that did not make our summer movie preview, I believe it is the Zack Snyder cut of Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. 
it's on Netflix. That's not, his name isn't really in the title, is oh, it? Oh, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's just how it's going to be going forward. Yeah, okay. it's like it's like John Carpenter. And Got he, it. He, he's earned that. So Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead on Netflix. Won't be on Film Spotting next week, but you can see it on Netflix. We will talk about A Quiet Place Part 2. And we'll see. Maybe we'll get back to our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. And we'll talk about the great Barbara Koppel documentary. At least I think so. Harlan County, USA. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.